Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking to Dr. Pat Crossgary. Dr. Pat Crossgary has an MD and PhD degree. He is a professor in emergency medicine at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. For the past 10 years, he has been director of the Critical Thinking Program in the Division of Medical Education at the Faculty of Medicine at that same institution. He is trained as an experimental psychologist and is also an emergency medicine physician who found himself surprised by the relatively scant amount of attention given to cognitive errors in medicine. He is one of the world's foremost experts in safety and emergency medicine and in diagnostic errors. He is humble, honest, and thoughtful. There is a link to an interview with him for more insight into his background and work in the emergency department that's in the show notes. There are also other key links to his work, including a British Medical Journal article, as well as a recent book of his titled The Cognitive Autopsy. I highly recommend reading that book if you're interested in learning more about how our minds work specifically in medicine. There's also even a dermatology case, which was exciting for me. Welcome to Dr. Koskeri. Thank you, Christine. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell me something about yourself that your biography doesn't illuminate? I'm married and I have one son who's actually a medical student. I feel as though he's allowing me to stay in touch with modern medicine. I'm pretty much retired from emergency medicine now. You wrote recently in a BMG editorial, when, and I said the link is in the show notes earlier, that a curriculum in clinical reasoning should be taught in all phases of clinical education. Can you speak about how metacognition or dual process theory and emotional intelligence underpin that curriculum? If you talk to psychologists about affect, which is how the clinician feels, and that may be positive or negative, or it may be neutral, the psychologists say that we're usually placed somewhere on an emotional spectrum, whether it's you slightly like somebody just on the basis of their appearance or what they're saying, or you may slightly dislike them, or you may polarize even further along that uh, continuum. The psychologists call that the affect heuristic, that actually we tend to make decisions based on our emotions, which are largely unconscious to us. And, and if you think about that, that's a pretty daunting revelation. So the problem arises that as an emergency physician, I may approach a patient and they may trigger a negative affect. And without being consciously aware of it, I may, my decision making may change in a biased way for no good reason. The second problem they mentioned is that your first reaction to a patient, not only is it influenced uh, by this affect heuristic, but also it tends to influence what follows. Because as you initiate your decision making process, it tends to trigger what follows. This has been discussed in the psychology literature, and they refer to it as a cascade effect, that the first bias tends to trigger more bias, and it's also been referred to as a snowball effect. Affect is critically important, probably underpins a lot of decisions. Medicine has to undergo a similar kind of epiphany as the one that they went through with statistics. They recognize the essential need for proper statistics. And what we're asking for now is that they recognize the essential need for an appreciation and a training in cognition in medicine. I want to make that parallel between how statistics emerged in, in experimental medicine, which was absolutely essential, 
And I'm arguing now for the emergence of cognitive training in, in medicine as part of our standard curriculum. That makes a lot of sense to me what you just described, because definitely when I was a medical student, I had a statistics course for sure. But I would say I have never taken a course ever actually in decision making. What are some of the key concepts in cognitive psychology that cognitive psychologists take for granted that you would want to see in such a curriculum? In medicine, the biases we want to talk about are called JDM biases, judgment and decision making. These are normal characteristics of human cognition that you will tend to exhibit anchoring, availability, confirmation bias, and all those others. There's lots of them. We want to get across very much the idea that these JDM biases, judgment and decision-making biases, first of all, they're universal. Everybody demonstrates them, whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or a builder or a politician. We all do it. We're not necessarily aware of it. That's the second major problem, is that a lot of these biases, judgment and decision-making biases, they occur subconsciously, and they influence fairly significantly what we do. And most people don't have an insight into how they actually happen. A lot of us are being manipulated by these biases unconsciously, subconsciously or unconsciously. I think most people aren't aware of it. People have even argued in medicine that doctors aren't vulnerable to biases, to these kinds of biases. And and I find that shocking, (laughs) that we should be considered different in a fundamental characteristic of human behavior. Why should doctors be any different? There's nothing in our training that actually trains us to be objective and de-biased and aware of biases. In fact, quite the opposite. There's an absence of training. What you just covered is that a curriculum would address JDM bias, so judgment and decision-making bias, and cover some of the most important biases that doctors especially are affected by. Would it also be important for the curriculum to address metacognition and system one or type one and system two or type two thinking? We train medical students here at Dalhousie in decision-making, and we start with dual process theory. We say, first of all, we're going to tell you that you don't know anything about decision-making unless you can tell me what dual process theory is. There have been lots of theories about how people make decisions, but dual process theory is probably the most powerful. It's the most coherent and the most widespread. People people now know about it. You hear politicians refer to it, lawyers, people in business, and so on. It's become a very well-founded and grounded model for how we make decisions. We first of all say, you need to know about this. You need to know that there are two major processes by which we can arrive at decisions. You can start to say, well, how does system two, which is conscious, deliberate, analytical, how does it monitor system one, which is unconscious, impulsive, and something that people aren't particularly aware of? So we can now bring in the concepts of mindfulness, metacognition, which is just thinking about how you're thinking, understanding that we may make decisions in different ways. You can start to say, well, then, what are metacognitive processes? And they are things like reflection, which is trying to pull back from the immediate situation 
and focus on what you're thinking and what sort of impact the patient is having on you. And mindfulness, just being aware of what impact you have in this decision-making with the patient. The model describes how that metacognitive step occurs from system two to system one. In the cognitive autopsy, you describe four major categories of intuitive thinking. The system one thinking you just mentioned, that fast, hardly thinking, almost like a gut reaction type of thing. Can you break those down a little bit? First of all, just for the record, we don't use the term thinking. I know that Daniel Kahneman does, but we we don't actually say thinking in system one. We say decision-making. Because if you look up any definition of thinking, it implies some sort of deliberate act. If I say to you, what were you thinking? You immediately start to think, what was my brain actually doing while I was thinking? And you don't usually say, well, I guess it was just an impulse. Because impulses and rapid responses from system one don't necessarily involve any thinking. They're often no more thinking is attached than there is in a spinal reflex. You hit them with some sort of association, they make a response. To our minds, that's hardly thinking. That is decision-making, but not necessarily thinking. So in System 1, Keith Sanovich, Maggie Toplak, and Richard West, a collection of three individuals, have worked very much on dual process theory and how System 1 gets established. They actually translate that pretty much into rationality and say, the more people are good at resisting these impulses and decisions that are made in system one, the more likely this person is to be rational. That's their first claim. And I think it's a good one. They say that the origins of decision-making in system one come from four sources. The first one is we're born with it. It's it's in our DNA. So if, if you go back to our prehistoric past, way back, Certain patterns in our behavior were established that facilitated our survival. Say, for example, you, a famous bias in medicine, one that's common in radiology, is called uh, search satisfaction, where once you find something, you tend to call off the search for anything further. So they say, well, our ancestors from 200,000 years ago, if they were looking for food, or they were looking for shelter, or they were looking for a mate, somebody to have children with, they would probably stop as soon as certain criteria were satisfied. That is translated into a modern version of search satisfying, that as soon as you find something, you tend to call off the search. So that's the first category of biases. These are actually in our DNA. The second category is associated with emotion, and we've talked a bit about this already. That emotional tagging of biases can certainly, as we demonstrated earlier, can certainly influence the decisions that you make. The third category is called explicit learning, which is I teach you certain ways to respond to certain things, and that later on, when you're in that situation, you make the predictable response. It happens in medicine too. You've explicitly learned certain behaviors that are acceptable and are not acceptable. And then the fourth category is called implicit learning, where this is a little bit more difficult to get across. But if you talk to, say, coach of rowing, they say things like time spent in the boat actually teaches you about how the boat works. Even though nobody else may be there to point out to you what's going on, you develop a kind of muscle memory or cognitive memory for what the boat's doing that becomes implicitly established as part of your repertoire. 
even though you haven't necessarily been instructed in anything explicit. So those are the four major categories. I think you explain this in your book as well, the implicit category, that fourth category you said, where you're describing of maybe just a rower being in a boat, you just learn kind of the culture. To me, that relates to the hidden curriculum of medicine, the culture of medicine, which tends to hide mistakes, tends to actually believe, as maybe the world does, that doctors are rational. And that, as you mentioned before, somehow we're not prone to these JDM biases that everyone is. The hidden curriculum suggests that we already know this stuff. But I think the hidden curriculum actually has taught me that I really don't know this stuff. I think you're absolutely right. Diagnostic failure was a victim of the hidden curriculum, that when I came into medicine, people never discussed their failings, particularly. Diagnostic failure in particular was not discussed. I think we were simply unwilling to admit that we occasionally get it wrong. Not so much in dermatology, it's probably down around 2 or 3%, but in emergency medicine and internal medicine, probably around 15%. If I'm reading 100 slides, 2 to 3% of the time, if I'm average, I would be making a mistake on that. That's really an uncomfortable thought. I circle back to metacognition and this JDM bias and learning about it because I find comfort in it that I can improve my process of thinking and diagnosis since diagnosis is thinking. Do you have any final thoughts? Just recently, a doctor here made a mistake on a child's diagnosis. Now, it could happen to anybody. If, if you know cognitive science and you know how dual process theory works and you know something about the various traps we fall into, then you would say, well, you know, this is why it happened. But that physician tried to take his life a few days later because he was so distressed by, by what he'd done. The thing is, he didn't really do anything other than end up on the wrong side of the decision. I think if we understood the process better, we wouldn't be so hard on ourselves. I think we should be hard on ourselves if we get it wrong. But I don't think we should be driven to those extremes. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.